Well, today we wrap up our study in the book of Zechariah. We started this book at the beginning of the year. And one of the reasons we told you we wanted to do this book was because of how many times this book references the person and work of Jesus, which would come some 500 years later. And even this week, I was just reminded of just how affirming this is of our faith, of all these different real specific things Zechariah prophesied that the Messiah would, would do, how he would do it, where he would do it, um, that we see so perfectly fulfilled in Jesus. And so since it is our last week, um, I'm, I'm, it's, been, it's been kind of hard for me, just going to be honest. It's like it's kind of a sense of mourning here. Um, it's, uh, I feel like I'm losing a friend today. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to walk through what we've learned and what we've seen in regards to Zechariah pointing us to Jesus as we begin before we get into today's text. So Jesus in the book of Zechariah. You guys may recall in chapter 2, one of the the visions that Zechariah was given was that of a man with a measuring line who went out to measure Jerusalem because Jerusalem as a city had been torn down, had been destroyed. They were there to rebuild it. And so this guy's out with the measuring line trying to figure out, okay, where are the walls going to be? How big is this thing going to be? And then an angel says, no, no, run and go tell that young man Jerusalem will be like a city without walls. He's basically saying God is going to do something beyond what you're thinking. You're thinking of you're thinking here, building up this one little city, but God is going to do something in that city so amazing that it will be like a city without walls. And of course, we, we saw that that promise is fulfilled in the church, that the church has become now like a city without walls that has gone out way beyond Jerusalem, even though that's where it started, to all the ends of the earth. And that in that same chapter, God said he's going to be the one that does this, and he he rouses himself. We see almost this picture of him coming up off of his throne of, of a time where it looked like, from their perspective, God was not involved, that he was now going to jump into history and get involved, which we see Jesus doing in a way that we couldn't have even fathomed, of coming off of his throne, not only to intercede, but to come live among us and be involved on a level we couldn't have imagined. In chapter 3, we saw this image of Joshua, the high priest, another one of Zechariah's visions, where he saw the high priest at the time, Joshua, standing before the Lord. But Joshua had a problem that he was supposed to be wearing the high priestly garments, which were these really ornate, intricate vestments he was supposed to wear, but instead he was covered in just filthy, nasty clothes. And you may remember Satan was accusing him, saying he's unfit to do this, but the response to that is Joshua is given new clothes. He's, he's dressed in the proper priestly vestments, but then he's given an extra kind of stone to add to his attire. And on that stone is, is inscribed seven eyes, which points us to a passage in Revelation that refers to Jesus, the Lamb of God slain. And also inscribed on that stone is a branch, which was a common prophecy in the Old Testament, the branch of David, the, the root of David that would come and the king that would come in David's line. So we see Joshua given this stone that represents both that of the being of the line of King David and also the Lamb of God, a sacrifice, this king who would make a sacrifice, which of course we see fulfilled in Jesus. And then chapter 6, we see this vision again of, of the high priest who is there and he's serving as the priest, but then somehow it, the author just kind of switches and this priest is sitting on a throne given a crown. So this these two offices of priest and king that in the Old Testament were very separate, that there was a line there you didn't cross when, 
when a priest tried to act like a king, that was a problem. When a king tried to act like a priest, that was a really big problem, right? We saw that with, with Saul, and God rejected him for that. There were two separate offices that we see kind of merged into one, that this priest ascends to the office of king and is given a throne and a crown, which we see fulfilled in Christ, our king and our great high priest. And then in chapter 8, we saw this vision of Jerusalem being so great that all the Jews, right, are gathering back in Jerusalem. The city's been built up. God has done an amazing work there. Everyone is coming, returning to see what God has done. And not only are the Jews coming, but all nations are coming, that the Gentiles are, are grabbing onto the fringe of a Jew's robe while he's running to Jerusalem, hoping to literally, like, ride in on his coattails to see this thing that God had done. And if you're familiar with the life of Jesus, this probably conjures up in your mind the idea or the story, rather, of a woman who, was, who had a bleeding issue, and then Jesus walked by, and she thought, if I can just grab the edge of his robe, I will be healed. In chapter 10, we see this verse that this Messiah God is promising would, sorry, I'm back up, chapter 9, I missed one. We see this king entering on a donkey, right? That's when we, we get that verse, that, behold, your king is coming, humble as he mounted on a, on a donkey, this idea of Messiah riding into Jerusalem in a humble way on a donkey in an unexpected manner. Then in chapter 10, we, we see this verse that this Messiah would, quote, pass through the sea of troubles and calm the waves of the sea. Which again ought to, ought to make us think of Luke chapter 8 when Jesus is out on a boat with his disciples and it's a storm and he's, he's sleeping through it and they wake him up and he says, peace be still. The winds stop, the waves die down, and they say, who is this man that even the winds and the seas obey him? And then more recently in chapter 11, we saw that God commanded Zechariah to go out before the people and kind of act this thing out, right? That, um, that you, would, you would take on the role of a shepherd and you would take with you two staffs, a staff of uh, favor and a staff of union. The staff of favor was symbolic of the favor between God and man, and the staff of union being now Israel would be united because of their favor with God. And God basically said, you're going to go out and you're going to act like this really good shepherd, but here's what's going to happen. They're going to reject you. Even though I've sent them a gift of a good shepherd, a good leader who cares for them, who's leading them in the right direction, that they're going to reject you, right? And then, and then as, the, as the story plays out, he's offered 30 pieces of silver, which, which if you know the context, it's like a, a, very, a very pathetic wage for someone who'd done what he did for the t- amount of time he did as a shepherd. So he just basically says, hey, that's like, that's like a potter's wage, and he donates it, right? We see those same elements play out in the betrayal of Jesus, that God sends Jesus as the good shepherd. And then as a reward for his serving and leading the people the way he did, one of his best friends betrays him for, for 30 pieces of silver. That's then used to buy the potter's field. So all these prophecies leading up to Jesus. And then last week, we, we, we really bookended this whole thing with like chapter 12 through chapter 14 and kind of combined them. Um, and, and, and Scott looked at some of the, the themes of, of, of God's judgment in that. And we, we saved this last passage for today so we could wrap up this book by looking at one more passage where there's this very distinct prophecy about who Jesus would be and what he would do. 
So we're going to look at these verses, and we're going to make um, basically four observations um, about the end of chapter 12 and the beginning of chapter 13. So the first observation we're going to make is this. God will be pierced by his people. That's Zechariah's prophecies. He prophesies that God will be pierced by his people. Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10 says this, And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him. Now this is, this is about the third time where God promises to do something through a person, but then the pronouns start getting really weird in the middle of it, right? It's like, I'm going to send you a person on, on him, but then him all of a sudden turns into to me. So you read this passage and say, okay, they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, and they shall mourn for him. Well, which is it, God? Are you talking third person about someone else, or are you talking about yourself? Is it him or is it me? And because God is triune, the answer is both, that we have God speaking to his people, and he's speaking to them about someone he's going to send because he's going to send his son, Jesus. But because Jesus is also fully God and fully man, God rightly says that what's done to him is done to God, that by piercing Jesus, they are actually piercing God himself. So God's people will pierce him. God will be pierced by his people. The second observation we make from this text is that God's people will mourn. So um, we have kids in the service with us today. I'm excited to have you guys here. I'll do this thing to kind of help you all stay with us and stay engaged. So I'm going to ask you, are you listening? And you're going to say, yes, Pastor Kai. Okay, you all got it? We've got some new kids, so you all got to catch up to speed here. Kids, are you listening? Perfect, perfect. Um, kids, I want to ask you something. How many of you have ever done something and regretted it? Raise your hand. You, you did something, and then like a day or two later, I see a lot of adults participating here too, right? You've done something, and then like immediately you thought, oh my gosh, why did I say that? Why did I say that? That was, that was a really bad decision. I got you, Ford. I, I see it. You're still up there. So it was like, yeah, I've done that a lot of times, right? So all of us have done that, right? You've done something and then you just immediately regret it. It was a bad decision. That's what we see here is that God is saying, my people are going to do this thing and then they are going to really regret it. They are going to look at the thing they did and they are going to mourn over it. They're going to they're weep. They're going to be broken over this evil thing that they have done. That there's this change of heart that's prophesied in relation to this, this shepherd that would be pierced and rejected. We see that fulfilled so amazingly in the book of Acts. Look with me on the screen in the book of Acts chapter 2. This is right after Jesus had sent the Holy Spirit to be um, at Pentecost on the disciples. And Peter is preaching his sermon because they're like, what's going on here? You guys are acting crazy. Peter addresses the crowds and he says this, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with many works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So Peter's basically looking at this crowd that's assembled there in the temple, and he's saying, listen, men of Nazareth, listen, like, or, or men of Israel, you, God sent you this man, Jesus. 
And he, and he affirmed it by signs and wonders. You all know what I'm talking about. You know the signs. You, you've, you've heard the stories about the miracles this man did. And what did you do? You put him on trial and yelled out, crucify him so that he was killed and put him to death by the hands of lawless men. Now, he goes on to say, fortunately the story doesn't stop there. Peter continues to preach and calls them to repent. And I want you to look at their response. That they go from a crowd who was saying, crucify him, to now Peter is preaching to them about who Jesus was and what he had done. As Peter continues on, look what happens in Acts 2, chapter 37. It says this, Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? So in other words, these men were completely hostile to Jesus, but then after preaching this sermon, they pulled a complete 180 and they're broken. It says they were cut to the heart saying, my gosh, what have we done? What can we now do that we've committed this great evil? Now, I don't know if you've ever tried to change someone's mind before, but it's not an easy thing, right? You all know this, right? If you've ever tried to change someone's mind. If you're married, you know what I'm talking about, right? You try to change someone's mind and it usually does not have the desired effect. Um, there was this, uh, this meme going around a while back, and I guess this was this guy that was doing um, these, like these, he would set up this booth and try to talk to people about controversial things, but it said, change my mind at the bottom. And so I'm going to show you a few examples of a way where it might be hard to change someone's mind. Let's look at one. Now, if you've, if you've not been to Chiloso yet, but you have been to Chipotle or Freebirds, you, you, don't, you don't know how true this statement is, right? Um, if, if someone is new to Rockwall and like, there's this argument about, you know, they've never been to Chiloso, they might argue about which is better, Freebird or Chipotle, as if one of those two like holds place number one. But if, if you've been in Rockwall for a while, I've been to Chiloso, you know that that's really just an argument about who's second and who's third, right? That, that clearly Chiloso is number one. But if someone has not had it, they may have a hard time believing you. Here's another example. This one's for uh, this one's for Mark Bowder. If y'all don't know Mark, man, he's he's a great guy. He's a he's a deacon. He serves faithfully at this church, and he is wrong. And there, there's there's a there's a big but at the end of this, right? But this guy came up to me once and was telling me about how Tillamook ice cream is better than Blue Bell. And I was like, what is this? Some cheesy joke? I mean, there's no way that Tillamook makes a some of you got that. Some of you, there's no way that Tillamook makes a better ice cream than Bluebell, um, and it would be foolish to think otherwise. Here's, a, here's one more for you. Okay. So now we got some California transplants in here. Yeah, a little, little bit more of a mixed response there, so... If you were to try to tell Californians, you know, they love their In-N-Out, right, that, that Whataburger is better. Like, what I've found is it doesn't matter how objectively right you are. Like, they just have it so ingrained in their head that In-N-Out is better that it's just, like, impossible to change their mind despite any amount of clear, unbiased evidence you could present to them. It's just not going to happen, right? But we all know that. We know, we know how hard it is when someone believes something, even something about food, Right? to change their mind about it, much less someone who has rejected this Messiah that God has sent and has been part in his 
arrest and betrayal and crucifixion and, and, and has created a mob that is crying out, crucify him. Like, you know it would take a miracle to change those people's mind. Not just one or two of them, but basically the whole assembly gathered at the temple goes from crucify him to, my gosh, what have we done? And what can we do about this great evil we've committed? But that's exactly what we see happening because it was a work of God. Look at there again in your Bibles in Zechariah 12.10. God promised to do this. He said, I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy. That when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn. Why did, they, why did they mourn later at Pentecost when Peter accused them of crucifying the Messiah, of putting to death God's servant? Because God had poured out on them a spirit of grace and of pleas of mercy. That God had gifted them the ability to repent so that when they heard it, they were cut to the heart. They were changed in a way that transcends anything a good speech would be able to accomplish. The third observation I want to make from this morning that Zechariah prophesies here is that God's people will scatter. God's people will scatter. Kids, are y'all still listening? I want to tell y'all a story about another kid I know, a family I know. Um, a friend of mine, a good friend of mine, was uh, he had his daughter at the doctor. Um, I think it was to get a, a flu shot. And it was one of those offices where they were doing a lot of them that day, so they had all the kids in the waiting room, and the parents would just kind of have the kids on their lap, you know, trying to hope they don't know what's about to happen, right? And, uh, and the doctors would actually come out into the waiting room and just issue the shot right there. And so this dad is, is holding his daughter. She's, she's about four or five at the time, and she sees what happens, right, because it's happening right in front of her, that this doctor comes out and gives this kid a shot, and she sees the needle, she sees the pain, and her only her only response was just to bolt. <laughs> so she just like takes off running out the door before the dad can grab her. And so he goes out the door chasing her. She's out the door through the parking lot, hiding under the truck, <laughs> just hoping nothing, <laughs> trying to avoid the situation. We're like, what was, what was her end game there? It's like, there wasn't an end game. It was just to get away from that, right? So it's just like, I'm just, I see something happening and I'm just, I'm out. I'm going to scatter, Right. Guys, this is what we see the disciples doing when Jesus is betrayed, right? That they've been following this guy for three years. They're in. They're trusting him. But as soon as he's arrested, there's just this scattering, right? That, that, that those who are his followers are bolting. They're getting out of there. That's what we see happen in Matthew 26. Jesus knows this is going to happen. He refers back to Zechariah's prophecy. And he says, when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus said to them, You will fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. And what he's quoting is Zechariah thirteen seven, a little bit later than what Aaron read earlier, which says this, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. So we see these prophecies about what's going to happen in Jerusalem as Zechariah, that God's, God will be pierced by his people, that God's people will mourn, and God's people will scatter. And then lastly, we see that because of this, a fountain of cleansing will be opened. Let's look at chapter 13, verse 1 again. 
On that day there shall be a fountain opened up for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanliness. Now I want to camp out on this, this last element of the prophecy and actually make three observations about this one. So kind of three points under this one point. And the first one I want us to consider is this, is that God killed the good shepherd. Look at it again. Chapter 13, verse, or sorry, chapter 13, verse 7, if you look a little bit forward. God says this, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. And it's very interesting that God moves from saying God's people are going to be the ones to reject the shepherd and to kill him, to moving to the point where he's saying, I'm the one that's going to do this. And it kind of brings up an interesting question, and I wonder how many of us would answer this question. If someone were to ask you the simple question, who killed Jesus? I wonder how we would answer that question. Like, there's, there's a lot of ways you could answer that question, right? I mean, you might say, well, the Jews, right? The Jews in, the, in Jerusalem at the time were the ones that rejected Jesus. They cast him aside. They were the ones crying out, crucify him, putting the pressure on Pilate to make that decision, right, with this mob. Or you might say, well, I mean, you can't really blame the, the common people at large, right? It was really their leaders. It was really the, the Pharisees and Sadducees, right, the Sanhedrin. They were the ones that plotted, that betrayed him. I mean, they were the ones that really killed him. Or you might say it was really Judas, right? I mean, none of that would have happened if Judas hadn't made this deal with the Sanhedrin and betrayed him and all that kind of stuff. Or you say, well, really, I mean, the Jews kind of were calling out for that, but they didn't have the power. It was really, it was really Pilate who was the one who did it. And you could say, well, Pilate ordered these Romans to do it. And, you know, they're the ones that actually, these Roman soldiers actually nailed him to the cross and, and put him up on all those kinds of things. But the reality, if we understand the New Testament, is that, and the Bible really as a whole, is that the, ultimately the one responsible for the death of Jesus is God himself. That it is God who sent Jesus to die in our place, that, he would, that God the Father would, um, would pour out the wrath he had for our sins on his Son as a sacrifice, as a wrath-bearer, to die in our place in order to orchestrate our punishment being diverted to another that we might be brought near and forgiven. So God is the one that killed the good shepherd and he did it by the hands of these men and he orchestrated the whole thing and other people were involved but he was the one pulling the strings behind it the whole time. Secondly, about this fountain of cleansing that would be opened is that the shepherd is struck. It's interesting that in chapter 12, the language is used of, of he would be pierced. This Messiah that's sent, he would be pierced by his people. But then in 13, it switches, 13 chap, verse, chapter 13, verse 7, to the shepherd would be struck. Instead of a picture of a, something with a point or a knife, you've got this picture of like a blunt object striking something. And I think the reason for that is it, it points us back to a very similar picture we see in the book of Exodus. God's people were wandering in the wilderness. They were complaining for hunger and thirst. And God had provided from them so many times up to this point, right? The first three days, they didn't have anything to drink. They were like, God, we're going we're gonna to die out here of thirst. They're complaining to Moses. God provides for them. 
He turns the water sweet, and then the next day he brings them to a place with 12 springs and 70 palm trees. Then he provides a man over there complaining about hunger, and he's trying to get them to see, look, I've got this. I'm going to be here for you. But there's this stubborn and rebellious people who refuse to trust God despite how many times he's miraculously provided for them. And then in chapter 17, they run out of water again. Look what happens. Exodus 17.3 says this, But the people thirsted there for water. And they grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt? To kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with these people? They are about ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there, on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people of Israel will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders. So what you have is this picture of a rock that, when struck, as a result, streams of life were given to a stubborn and rebellious people which is exactly what we see in Jesus. That the fountain is the cleansing blood of Jesus. You think in that situation, like what an odd consequence, right? Who would have thought if you strike a rock, water would come out? I mean, you ever tried that? It's it's never worked for me. Like, what a crazy thing to happen as a consequence of striking something that water just comes out of, right? Especially something like a rock. And we could say the same thing about this whole line of prophecy here in the book of Zechariah. What an odd promise for God to give, right? That I'm going to send a shepherd among you, a good shepherd. I'm going to send you this Messiah, this, this priest king. And here's what's going to happen. You're going to strike him down. And as a result of that, now what would you expect there, Right? God's going to send this Messiah. You're going to strike him down. You would expect the the consequence and the result of that to be not something to look forward to, right? But instead, what we see in the book of Zechariah is God saying that, I'm going to send you the shepherd. You're going to strike him down. And because of that, in chapter 13, verse 1, on that day when you strike that shepherd down, there shall be a fountain opened up for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanliness. Think back for a minute about the idea of cleansing, something that would cleanse someone from sin, right? If you're a Jew in the Old Testament, and you think of being cleansed of something, you think of a fountain of cleansing, you would probably think of the temple, where the priests would, before they went in to serve, have to do certain washings. They would wash their hands in the specific basin of water that would kind of cleanse them to prepare them to go serve before the Lord in the temple. Now I want you to consider a few things about that basin that would exist there at the temple. A few things about it that's um, characteristic of it. One of them is that the water would be limited, right? There's, it's not a fountain, right? It's just a, it's just a bowl or some kind of a basin where there's a certain amount of water there, and when it runs out, you're going to have to refill it. A second thing about it is that it's only limited, but it's local, that it only exists here. You can't just go to a stream and do your ceremonial cleansing and then go before the Lord wherever you want. You have to go to this place 
at this time. It's not available for all. Only certain people can come here and cleanse themselves with this water. And eventually, right, the water is going to need to be changed out because it's going to get dirty. It's going to get used. And think in contrast to this, God is promising not, not a basin, right, or a pitcher, but for a fountain of cleansing to be opened up. Not about you, when I hear that word fountain, I just think like something that's just overflowing, something that's just gushing, something that's just got like a seemingly endless supply of water available for however many and however much people might want. So unlike a basin, a, a fountain is not limited and local, but it is, it is gushing. It's like an un, seemingly unlimited supply of, of grace and forgiveness. And not only that, but it's going, right? A fountain isn't like contained in this one little spot that as it comes out, it's then, it's then moving out from there in all different directions. And the power of this fountain is great. This fountain is the blood of Jesus which goes out to cleanse us from sins. There's an author I came across, J.C. Ryle, who said this, this thing about Jesus' blood and the sacrifice for sins and how, how bad sin must have been for this to take place. And he says this, Terribly black must that guilt be for which nothing but the blood of the Son of God could make satisfaction. Heavy must the weight of human sin be, which made Jesus groan and sweat drops of blood in agony at Gethsemane. I thought about that quote, and I thought about the, the converse of it, right? Which would be this in regards to this fountain. How abundant was the payment that Christ made with his blood? That after Christ was struck, grace... And forgiveness flowed forth like a fountain to all who would believe. Friends, this is Zechariah setting us up to understand the gospel that when Jesus would be struck down in Jerusalem by his own people, God was the one pulling the strings behind that so that through that striking, a fountain of forgiveness would be opened up and streams would flow forth so that anyone who would look upon the shepherd who was struck and place faith in him, would receive the forgiveness that flows out, which was purchased by his blood. As instead of going um, straight into the Lord's Supper, as we wrap this up, um, we're going we're gonna to sing a song written by a guy named William Cowper. And I'm going to tell you just a little bit of a, a backstory on this song. Um, William Cowper was a guy that... Uh, wrote this hymn that most of you guys are probably familiar with, but he lost his mom at the age of six, and it basically sent him into depression, and he ended up in, a, in an insane asylum. Um, and through that, he was desperate. He was obviously not in, his, um, in a good place. But in that as- insane asylum, um, he was entrusted to the care of a Christian man who shared the gospel with him. And upon hearing this, he eventually came to believe, and his mental health was restored, um, and he was, had a hope that he didn't have before. He still battled depression the rest of his life, but things were very different from where they were before he knew the gospel. And I want to I read you this quote, and then we're going to go into this song that he wrote about this verse we've covered today, and it says this, Immediately I received strength to believe it, 
and the full beams of the Son of Righteousness shone upon me. I saw the sufficiency of the atonement he had made, and my pardon was sealed in his blood. I could only look up to heaven in silent fear, overwhelmed with love and wonder. Guess pray with me. God, I pray that we would just see the abundance of what you've done in the cross this morning, that we would just see this picture of a, a fountain that is more than enough to pay for and cover any sin we've committed. And God, I pray that if anyone in here is uneasy about their, their standing with you, about whether or not they're forgiven for the things that they've done, God, I pray that you would open our eyes to see the abundance of what you've done through the cross, that that payment of Jesus' blood, more precious than gold, was enough to cover anything we might have done or ever do. We pray in his name. Amen.